The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Global Discipleship Initiative hosted a track called Turning Your Church into a Disciple-Making Mission. Greg Ogden facilitated this track for their team, and he has provided a quick one-page summary of how their organization advises people to start what they call micro-discipleship groups. They spell it all out in just one page, and that one-page PDF is available for download through discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. Now here's today's track session from Global Discipleship Initiative. So we started um, in this session on what's a successful disciple-making journey look like? And uh, Ralph shared with us some things around uh, his work at Camarillo Community Church as a picture of what a disciple-making church can be. We'll carry on with that, that vision here uh, as he looks at some of the uh, key elements of what happened uh, at the church there, and we do that in a more uh, systematic fashion. So to get to that point, there's three elements we think are important. You, if some of you have seen Real Life Discipleship with Jim Putman, uh, you've seen a version of this, of this picture. Um, so our seminar is built around these, these core elements. Uh, the relational environments uh, is the relational context. We call that the car, the vehicle that gets you where you want to go. And we're going to be looking at a couple sessions at that relational environment that creates the foundation for the disciple-making process. But the core of that is really creating an open, honest, trusting environment in a group of four. Uh, so, as some of you will know, uh, we focus in on what we call the microgroup as the basic unit um, in terms of which these disciples are made, and we think that's the environment in which it best occurs, and that they are most easily replicatable uh, kinds of experiences as well. Uh, every relational environment needs a leader, an intentional leader, that's the driver of the vehicle. And uh, so we'll be talking about the role of the leader in the subsequent sessions uh, and uh, how that leader uh, invites people into the process, um, helps establish a covenant and guides people through it, sets the value of reproduction, uh, the importance of, of the role of the leader, the driver. And then the third element is the reproducible process. That is, is pretty much equated with what we would call the curriculum or the GPS. Uh, of it, and uh, we're featuring a couple of the books that I've written. One, Discipleship Essentials, which is kind of the core curriculum, and then to Transform Your Discipleship, which is my, my textbook that explains the whys and wherefores behind the core curriculum. So uh, we'll be uh, focusing in on that. But those are later sessions. So I'm going to ask Ralph to come back up here at this point. And uh, he doesn't need to retell his whole story, but he can tell it through uh, some of these core benefits that, that occurred. So you might do a real quick recap okay. of uh, the Camarillo story, but then go more systematically into what did you see happen in terms of the elements uh, here for this. Got it. As I said uh, in the first session, but some of you weren't there, so uh, my dad was a pastor. And uh, when he died, uh, the kids came, the four of us, we came home and we got to split up some of the stuff and you know, people got different things. And But my dad had graduated from seminary and he had a ring uh, that was from the seminary and it had Matthew 28, 19 and 20 on it. And I got the ring. And so I've always felt like that was an important thing, you know, the, go into all the world and make disciples. And when I spent, uh, finished spending 14 years on Campus Crusade staff, I, uh, <clears throat> I finished some graduate work and took a church in Southern California. And it was just a handful of people, not too many, and no building, nothing, and we started going. And in a matter of years, we'd built buildings and we'd uh, seen the gr church grow. We saw a lot of people coming to Christ. Um, <clears throat> but we didn't, what we discovered later on was we were not doing an effective job in discipleship. And I discovered Greg's material, uh, which lays out such an excellent plan for taking people from wherever they are into a, a, an understanding of who they are in Christ and what uh, the basic doctrines of the faith, it's all there in his, in his workbook. And uh, we saw our church transformed from it. But here are some things that, that we found that uh, I call the serendipities um, of what we experienced. Transformation was doesn't come by information. 
And what I was doing on Sunday morning when I would preach is dump information. And every Sunday, dump more information, dump more information. And, and frankly, I was, I was learning. I was probably the only one that was because I was doing all the homework and I was doing all the presentation. Everybody else, come, they just sit there and listen. And I, and I don't know whether they're getting anything or not. And when we check, they weren't most of the time. They, they were not being able to retain a lot of it. So um, we, when we started doing this in the, in the microgroups, and we do them in gender-specific quads, Guys with guys and gals with gals, and that should be obvious, but it isn't always. You know why? Well, here's here's a couple reasons. First, because if you do if you do them with genders together, you know, husbands and wives, usually there's one's a mouthpiece and one's a listener, right? <laughs> and so you ask him a question and she answers. How come she? You know, or vice versa or whatever. You know, so one person can will many times hide and he just sits there and he doesn't like a bump and he doesn't ever get involved and so we don't know whether he's learning or not. So um, there's one problem, but another problem is you can't be as honest as you need to be. You can only go to a certain level of honesty. And I had a couple that said, well, we're honest about it. We're transparent about it. Well, that's great. You can be transparent with each other. But I'm not going to tell your wife my stuff, <laughs> you know. And you're not going to tell my wife my, your stuff, you know. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So you, you just can't go far enough. Um, my senior pastor now... And I, I retired three years ago, and I'm up at a, a mega church in Bellingham, Washington, and the senior pastor there, you know, uh, 2,500 people in his church every Sunday morning, and I sat down with him, talked to him about this discipleship, said, I want to do some of this up here, if that's okay with you. He says, that's okay with me, but I'm in your first group. Okay, you're in. So we started the group. My wife asked him later, Bob, why did you join that group with Ralph? He thought, and he said, well, I've been in small groups forever. We've had them in my home, but we never got deep enough. We never got to where I needed to go. And so when he got in, this, in, the, in the quad, one long before his, his group and his home disappeared. And that was a problem because his, then his wife didn't have anywhere to go, but he, his wife just got in a group with my wife last week, so that's taken care of now. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, we, we saw real transformation take place, in this, and then we saw multiplication. Uh, I, everybody knows that what the small group is supposed to do is you're supposed to get really fun and everything's going and then you divide it, right? And does it ever divide? Did anybody? Uh, we never were able to get ours to divide. They just wouldn't do it, you know? Uh, they, they like being together. They have a good time. They don't want to divide. And so you know, it never worked. It, we, we, we hoped it would, but it never did. This is built in from the beginning. When you sign up for the thing and you read those first 14 pages of the book, it talks about the multiplication factor. And you sign a covenant that when I get done with this, I'm going to go find three guys and do it again. And you make a covenant. You sign it. So they know that's a part of it. And then when we're in the group, we're changing leadership all the time because it's, you know, four people like that. There's no, there's no teacher. The Holy Spirit's the teacher. We're just sharing. And so next week you're going to lead, and then the next week you're going to lead, and then the next week you're going to lead, and we just change leadership. By the time they're done, they've led several times. They feel comfortable leading. Now, we do have a session that we'll talk about later on. We call the multiplication riddle because there are some things that you can run into there, but there's some solutions to them too. So I, I think, and for the sake of honesty, the hardest value to keep in front of people is their ownership of their being the leader of their own group. Uh, so multiplication of, of instilling that value. So the, we'll talk about ways to instill that value and, and ensure that that has a greater chance of, of happening. But uh, uh, so people go through an experience of a micro group for a year, a year and a quarter, uh, and it comes to the end and it's like, have they actually adopted that value where they will be self-initiating in terms of going out and finding other people to, to be, in, be in the group. So that's, we'll, we'll address this as, as we go, but just in terms of honesty, to keep that value in front of people is, is the, one of the hardest things that we do. And if you, yeah. can, if you, can, if you can multiply it 75%, would you be satisfied with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and we're, we're doing that. And there's some things that I think can help do that, ensure that that happens, but we're seeing some good multiplication. So real multiplication, take like harmony and unity, and that was in the whole church. I did not expect that. I didn't expect, I just, for whatever reason. But everybody, after 
three and a half years, I guess, by that time, we had already targeted most of the core of the church. All my elders were in groups. All my staff had been in group, you know, or were in groups and doing groups. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking the same language. Everybody's excited about their personal growth. There was just a whole new attitude in the church, and unity was it, it was there. It was just there, and I, I didn't expect it like it and was. And I was uh, sort of an outside <clears throat> invader because I would come into the church a number of times to do some teaching. And uh, what I noticed was the energy level of the people in the church. People, uh, they had a little system where they, when people led their groups, they had a little decals they put on, on front of Discipleship Essentials, and they had a decal for their leader and the three people in their group. And then when they reproduced, they showed how the reproduction took place. You know, like decals on helmets, helmets for football? Uh, well, they did this on their discipleship books. And people constantly coming up to me saying, look at all the groups that I've been leading and what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, that's Washington, and this is Southern California. So. Yeah, that, that thing. So. But, and, and, you know, we found all kinds of fun things to do, but that was, you know, it, we just found that uh, the harmony and unity of the church was amazing, and the evangelism. Somebody asked me last session about that, and that was a, that was a, a really another serendipity we didn't expect. Our evangelism went up, and it was because of the uh, the people in the quads. They were so excited about what they were learning, they couldn't help but talk about it. They talk about it their husbands, their wives, they talk about home, they talk about it at work. They're bringing people more, that, and... We were not even pushing it. We didn't expect it, but it just started happening. So evangelism went way up. Generosity. Um, I, I told uh, we we brought in a group of um, pastors from Romania first because we had a mission involvement there, and so we wanted them to learn this, and so we brought them in, and I went to the congregation and said, this is not a budgeted item, but we need $45,000 to bring these guys over and teach them how to do this, and uh, within two weeks, we had $45,000. Um, <clears> after about two years, we came back to the congregation, and, and we said, we want to do a global discipleship summit we want to and we weren't going to advertise it except through our own congregation but in our congregation it was one of those where we had 21 different languages on the stage one time from our own congregation reading scripture just fun thing you know to see how many are there 21 different uh, languages in our own congregation and so we <clears throat> we said okay you know people back in wherever you're from Malaysia uh, is there a pastor, is there a missionary, somebody we could invite that would be interested in doing this? If there is, give us their name and we'll invite them. Well, our people gave us something like 85 names or something like that, and we invited them, and I think 53 showed up for our, our, our discipleship summit. Came from all over. This time it was not going to cost 45. This time it was going to cost $85,000. And I went to, to the congregation again, and I said, uh, this is a non-budgeted item. We need $85,000 to bring these guys in. Within two weeks, they'd committed $85,000. When they'd given the $85,000, they kept giving. They gave $112,000, and we spent every dime. <laughs> But we brought these guys over, and the, and, and the only explanation, because we, you know, we'd earlier done projects and things like that, but this was, a, this was people just, they gave because they were experiencing it, and so they, they were willing to give to it. And later that same year, somebody said, let's pay off our building. We had a multi-million dollar building that we had, and they, they paid off the building that year. Uh, generosity went up. Joy and obedience. Uh, people just, just excited about, and, and Greg's already mentioned that. Um, global vision. One of my staff members, I still remember, walked out of his office and said, I feel so global. <laughs> you know, because son, suddenly, you know, Jesus saw it. Jesus said, go into all the world, didn't he? Now, what do those disciples think when he said go into all the world? The guy, guys had never been more than 30 miles from their own home, you know? All the world? What's all the world? You know, they but Jesus knew. And he knew that one day it's, it would happen. And so we, we, we found ourselves going into the world and never expected to do it. And yet now I take people with me. I just got back from Romania Monday. And I had two people from my current church. Uh, and both of them are just mid-cycle in the first quad that they're going through. And I said, who wants to go? And boy, they were right on it. you know. And so they, they went with me to Romania as we're teaching pastors over there. Um, authentic growth. Uh, the biggest thing in churches for me was always, you know, how many people showed up on Sunday, and you always want to be growing, and, and that's just the thing. 
but that's all of a sudden didn't become a measure of growth for me anymore. I realized that's not that's not real growth. Real growth is what's happening, the transformation is happening in people's hearts, and we saw it happening. We saw real growth taking place, and we we got real excited about that. Leadership development. When you're passing the group or the, the leadership of the group around, you're developing leaders. And we saw people coming out of the quads volunteering for leadership roles in the congregation. We couldn't, they didn't have time. When you first go to them, say, want to be in a quad? I don't have time. And once they get in it, all of a sudden you find them, they're leading three quads and they're asking for more work to do. You know, and you think, where did that come from? What changed that? Um, and the only answer was just what was God was doing through it. Um, volunteerism, same kind of thing there, volunteerism, when we needed something done. They were the volunteers. They were coming from uh, our quads in our, in our discipleship. So just some of the things that we saw happening in the church as a result of this, just helping people see authentic growth in their own lives. Would you like to lead a congregation that had that kind of energy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it, amazing, yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk about a little bit about... Uh, your workload during that whole time. Um, did your workload go up or down uh, as a result of the discipleship process? And I shared this the last time, and I'll share it again because it's a fun story, but I walked into the emergency room of St. John's Hospital because my uh, chairman of my board of elders had a heart event. And I get there, and I want to go see him, and I, you know, and the nurse stops me, and she says, uh, and I said, well, he, I'm his pastor, you know, he'll, I'm sure you let me in. He says, well, he left a list, and you're not on the list. And I look at the list, and it's his quad, you know, it's his quad members. He let them come in, but not a senior pastor, you know. And and then I realized, that's what we want, isn't it? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Yeah. And I saw my workload going down. I'm, I'm as, as a pastor, and I know, and I feel for all you guys, you, you carry such a huge load. You know, every Monday morning, I'm thinking what's going to happen against Sunday. I, you know, I, I've hardly gotten past, you know, the euphoria of, of great Sunday, and I've got to think of what we're going to do next week. You know, and you're just constantly under under the gun to be able to produce <laughs> and put the shows on and and do the stuff. And uh, my workload was going down because these people were standing up and doing the job and they were doing the work and uh, it was fun yeah that, you're right that should go under there you know pastor's job is no longer necessary <laughs> you know uh, yeah it just it was amazing how my just the burden on me as a pastor began to lighten in the third and fourth years and it and, and I emphasize third and fourth year because I, I would want everybody to know this is not a short-term fix this takes a while and you've got to you've got to commit yourself to it and stay with it and see it through to, to, to see the kind of results that we're talking about. But um, we were learning as we we're going. This this is not rocket science. Uh, and I'm not smarter than anybody else. It's just we, we just kept after it. You know, Greg's put stuff together and we just followed what he said in the book and we just tried to do it by the book and and we I had my leadership team, the guys that were starting to do it with me, and we were talking and we, we brainstormed and we woodshedded every problem and everything that came up that was a, a, a hassle. You know, we, we worked those things through and find answers and keep and kept going and kept going. And we, we saw this thing just take off and transform the church. I would say another thing that occurred at Camarillo was it was a combination of top down and bottom up. So top down in the sense that the staff were and core elders were all committed to this lifestyle. So everybody, if you were going to be on the staff of the church, you were going to be having, a, you were going to lead a microgroup. That's the way we're going to develop people here. And then you are then building from the grassroots up because all these groups are then multiplying on an organic level. And sort of underneath the radar screen, the congregation is being transformed with, from within. As you said, you didn't even announce anything for two and a half years. It was kind of a stealth movement uh, that was that was taking place, and that's basically the way we encourage that to happen. Um, all of us seem to have this programmatic mindset that says we got to kick from relationship, we're going to move from relationship. No, we do it as a program, uh, and so the way that when people make mistakes is because we want to get everybody in a group all at once, you know, or we want to. You know, have Discipleship Essentials be our teaching curriculum for the year, and we'll have everybody in small groups, and we'll do this for a year. Well, what happens at the end of a year? Well, what's the next thing we should need to do next year? Well, you have not, you have not sustained anything. 
uh, in terms of equipping people to disciple others. You've just taken them through a program, and then, then you're asking, "What's the next program?" Yeah. Well, let's do experiencing God next year, and we'll do whatever. And know, that's a that. focus. That's a focus on information, not transformation. And if it's just information, and what's going to be next preaching series, next you're just piling on more information. But when we got into the transformation as our target objective. Uh, it changed everything. People realize, and people show up on Sunday, and it's a celebration. You know, they're not there to, you know, to be entertained anymore. They're coming back because they're going to meet with their quad members. They're going to see people. They have, you know, and, and it's just, it was just a joyful thing that happened as a result of people seeing real, authentic growth in their lives uh, and sharing it together. Any other thoughts or questions at this point? Yes, in the back. Uh, the curriculum takes, there's 25 lessons in there, and it usually is t two weeks on a lesson. So you're, you're, you're talking about a year, typically. Sometimes it's longer, but it's not calendar-driven. It's not time-driven. It's transformation-driven. I had a group, and one of the guys came on uh, t to our group, and he said, guys, I think Pam and I are done. What do you mean you're done? I, I, I don't think we're going to make it, he said. We dropped, the, we dropped the material for about four weeks. All we did was, was minister to him. Uh, and the last Sunday I was there at, in Camarillo, and they had the big thing, and everybody was there, and they were saying thank you to the pastor and his wife and all that kind of stuff. And Ed stood up in the front row, Pam sitting down, and she said, he said, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Ralph's quad, and we were in that quad. And he saved my marriage. And that was not the only one. I mean, we had guys that shipped out on this, on, on on carriers and stuff because we were down there. Uh, I, I think your point is, uh, you might diverge from the curriculum for a while when you're dealing with issues like this. Yeah. When marriages are in, in jeopardy, or or health issues are going on, or somebody gets fired from a job, or whatever it may be, you know, we don't get slavishly connected to the curriculum. The cur curriculum is the tracks to run on that you can get back to, uh, but you can also then deal with. The crisis that are doing going up life. 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 Yeah. 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 And it's life on life. That's where the real, that's where the real growth is taking place when it, the interaction of lives. Usually you're, you're, you're coming together and you're spending the first, you know, uh, 10 minutes talking about just what's going on in your life, finding out where everybody is. And if there are critical things, maybe it's going to be a little longer, you know, uh, and that's okay. Uh, but then you, then, okay, what's your verse? Give me your verse. So, you know, and we're, everybody's sharing their, the verse they've memorized because you got a verse to memorize every week, so they're sharing their memory work, which is great. And some people try to shortcut that, but don't you do it because that's what makes you meditate on God's Word, and that's life transforming, uh, just meditating on God's Word. And you start memorizing these verses, and some of them aren't verses. They're, they are verses. <laughs> Sometimes it's three or four, you know, in there. So it's it, it may take some... I start at the first of the week, and I'm memorizing that verse. I'm repeating myself every morning, every night, several times during the day until I've got it down. And when I come to my group, I can say it. And I tell them that. I show them how to memorize. And we go back and we, we memorize. But so you memorize your verse. And then you then you, you go, you, whoever's leading, and we pass leadership around. Uh, whoever's leading, okay, um, here's the core truth. And he reads the core truth and he said, okay. And he starts ans asking the questions there. And people start interacting. Uh, with the questions. Um, <clears throat> you can pretty much get through a half a lesson. Uh, I've got one group that says, because they're all mature believers, and they said, we want to we want to get through this because we got guys we got to get in these groups. <laughs> uh, we want to go less than a week. Okay, if that's what you want to do, we'll do a lesson a week. And so we, we push through, and we then what we do is we take key questions. We don't get all the questions. We get key questions, because they're going to do it again. They don't have to do it all the first time, you know. They, they, and if a guy misses a week, some people ask the question, what happens if somebody misses? Well, if he's a mature believer, I don't worry about it because he's going to get it next time around, okay? If he's not a mature believer, then I take him aside and do a special session with him, something, or I have, or assign somebody in the group to do a special session with him, bring him, bring him up to speed. What's, this, what's the session, an hour, hour and a half? Hour and a half, yeah. typically an hour and a half. And two major blocks of time. One is, as you're saying, catching up sharing with what's right. going on, following through on prayer requests, and then perhaps that's 30 minutes and another hour for the content. But the na nature of the content is that it's not just informational content. 
there's a lot of personal questions application back to what's real life stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if you're doing life here and then you're doing content here. Uh, no, it's, it's getting you back into the issues of your life as well. So one of the geniuses of the way I think that, that Greg has put this together, there's no right, many times there's no right and wrong answer. It's just what did you think? And you share what you thought, and he shares what he thought, and, you, and so you're just sharing how God is, is, has spoken to you as you're going through it. So it's not right and wrong answers. We trans, we did the Korean thing, and the Koreans wanted a, they wanted an answer they book. They want an answer book. Because <laughs> that's, their, that's their culture, you know? That's their culture. They, they right answers. <laughs> I have a follow-up to that. Um, so they're doing, they're, every, everybody in the, in the quad is is working on the lesson before yes. they come into the Correct. Right. So they've already thought through it. Already yep. Prepared. They've written out and their answers. Sharing together the way that we Perfect. Practice. Perfect. Yes. Now, um, let's say that. So the life, curriculum is the teacher in a sense. So yeah. then life, and, and the Holy Spirit. life gets in the way. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you just, you have to confront it. You have to confront it, and you take them aside and say, you know, it's something going on you, that you can't get the work done. Yeah, I've noticed you haven't filled out the answers here. Something I need to help you with. Uh, and many times that's enough. You just you just call them on it, and they say, no, no, no. I, I've had some busy things, but I'll get it done next week. And and so, um, so but the, the good point is you've already gone over that in the covenant that you've made. They've made a commitment, you know, to that very commitment, that very thing. The first element on the covenant is I will complete all the work prior to my discipleship appointment. So you're not you're not asking them to do something that they aren't already committed to. So you you can be gentle initially. <laughs> and sometimes you have to do. I've never had to kick anybody out of the group, you know, are or you anything like to, that. I'm sorry. Are you going to be cautious about having them go out and leave then? If they're if they've been inconsistent <clears throat> in attendance, if if I'm not going to send them out, then you're starting right. a group and then they're doing the same thing. Sure. You, like begets like, right? Right. right. That's you, right. Yeah. Like begets like. If if a guy's not ready out there, by the time you've been through this a year, most people are ready. They really are. Uh, when the only time I've had to um, do something other than just send them out is when somebody has is personality challenged, their their relationship challenged. You know, they they don't they just don't relate well. With I have one guy as an engineer living with his mother at 45. You know, <laughs> in his in her basement. You know, I mean, he, he just he just didn't have relational skills. And uh, he had, he told me when he started, he says, I'm going to sign the covenant, but I don't think it'll work because I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he signed the covenant. We went on through, and he got to the end. It took him a year to find two other engineers that would go through it. <laughs> but we kept... Would you like to listen yeah. into that group? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But we, we, kept, we kept right on... I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't drop the group once we're done. I still meet with them probably once a month like that just to follow up and see how they're doing in their groups and if there's a guy that's struggling or whatever. Or we send them out in pairs. We say, okay, Joe, you get what Sam, you each of you find one person to come into the group, and you start another quad that way. So you can send them out in pairs. There, there are other solutions that help that we came across that we just kind of figured out that would work. Um, I'm a part of Perry Church Ministry, and we've been using your book as a basic primer just about since since you wrote it. It's just great, <laughs> the Transforming Discipleship. Yeah, okay. Thank you. The problem we run into, uh, typically speaking, is that after about three generations, we start with men, mm -hmm. start seeing a breakdown. Women okay. go six or seven. <laughs> but is it too early to talk about multiplication yet? Can you address that? Go ahead. Just yeah, yeah well, kind of keep it going. Yeah. Well, we have all these answers scheduled out, but when you ask it, that means you're re you're ready for it. So, okay, here's the answer. Here's you may not come back later. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the multiplication riddle, we called it. We, we ran into a, a time in our... In the ministry of the church, where we saw multiplication going down, and we weren't sure what was causing it, and so we got together and huddled up and tried to figure out. Okay, and we decided that whole year we're going to spend making sure we're getting this multiplication riddle solved, and taking our percentages of replication back up to where we thought they ought to be, which is about 75, 80 percent, is what we're aiming at, and so and it dropped down to about 60. So we, we began doing several things, and some of them were the, the fact that some people are just scared to go out, and they need help finding, or they need help finding people. And so we would help them find the people for their groups. We, we got one gal who was responsible for uh, just having 
gals in waiting so that you know next group comes along she's got people to you know feed in and uh, and that helped uh, we sent them out in pairs that helped um, um, we let's see we as far as you, you talked about it kind of ebbing off at a time we kept doing things that would make it really fun uh, like putting the you know things on your, your so you're you're recognizing that you God is using you to replicate and do it and and about three or four years in when this was it began to slow down I started saying more from the pulpit and so if you're a quad leader you know that was that was significant you know you're leading a quad we're talking about quads they hear that and they hear me reinforcing it from up front and they and then we started we started doing quad testimonies. We had people come up and share their experiences in the quads and what was happening, and that helped kind of whet people's appetite for it. So we, we found solutions that seemed to work and help the, help the replication keep well, going. Well, one of the solutions was that uh, when people completed a quad and they were getting ready to start their next one, you would have a public recognition in front of worship on a Sunday morning, and they would get a baton. And mm -hmm. so they're passing the baton one generation to, to the next. Uh, you had quarterly leadership meetings at the church, so we had ways of getting the people together who were leading quads and all the quad members uh, and have, hearing testimonies from each other and sharing what each other's experiences were with that. And so, I would bring speakers in like Dr. Greg Ogden to come talk to like us that. about you know, right. discipleship or Bill Hall or any, any of these guys will come. Yeah. You just ask them, they'll come. But there becomes a cultural momentum. Yeah. Uh, when you reach a certain critical mass, the number of people that have been involved in this process, uh, it takes over the life of the church and it reinforces a positive momentum. Uh, so those that, that, are, that are outside the church body out here in the bushes doing it as a parachurch ministry, uh -huh. you don't yeah. get that same momentum. True. Right? You, would, so, you would have more. Yeah. How do you speak to that? I don't know. You're going to have to speak yeah, to you, that. You, you <laughs> really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm an expert in everything, all right? All kinds of things. Yeah. No, he can speak to that. Very good. It, and there's a sense, there's definitely a, a confidence quotient involved here. It, your, your sense of you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're making disciples like Jesus made disciples. That people began to own that, and they recognize this is a good thing. I want to do this the rest of my life. You can still make it happen. That's that's a great testimony. I'm glad that you said that. You want to speak to that? He already did. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna move us along here, and so we can try to cover some new territory if if possible. So uh, return to your outlines. We're approximately page three, middle of the page there. Um, and I, I want, does everybody have this one-page definition of a microgroup? Let me just walk us through this real quickly and then we'll pick up on the kind of the second element here uh, on the, on the uh, elements of, of um, what makes for a successful disciple-making journey. So let me just, we tried to do a kind of a shorthand summary and hopefully this is a, a helpful overview uh, for you as you're trying to communicate this if you're planning to move on with it uh, to others in your church. So, so what is a, a what is a microgroup? One person prayerfully invites two or three others to join them on a journey of maturing in Christ, as well as learning to disciple others. The original group multiplies at the completion of discipleship essentials or whatever curriculum you want to slip in there uh, by reaching out to two or three others, making disciples who make disciples. Over a period of, year, of years, a church is transformed from within organically to the place where the identity of the church is a disciple-making congregation. So that's a real quick overview of what um, we're trying to accomplish here. So why are we doing this? Since the mission of the church is to make disciples, we need a specific way to do it. Uh, with the experience of over 30 years, we found this is the most effective means for an average person to accelerate their growth in Christ and then, by experience, learn to reproduce a similar experience for others. So we're trying to do something that is, like, like I say, profoundly simple. Uh, this is not a complex deal here in terms of uh, you know, having people in a group and, and people always ask me, is there a separate training for being a leader in the group? Uh, no, it's being in the group and then experiencing the opportunities to lead within that time frame that, that creates that opportunity. So you're simply replicating an experience that you've had. You might put your own twist on it. Everybody has their own personality. So we're not trying to just do cookie cutter things. We're all uh, individuals. But at least lays out a way um, to, to see this take place within the life of a congregation. How? 
uh, form a covenant to meet weekly around a discipleship curriculum, such as discipleship essentials, growing in transparency by applying God's word honestly to the growing edges of your life. So the issue of honesty within the context of a microgroup and creating that place of trust and openness is very significant, very uh, important to this whole thing. And that's why we keep the groups the size that they are. Uh, the larger the groups, the more difficult it is to develop that kind of trust that's necessary to, to open your life uh, to each other. You'll see in both Disciples of Essentials and then my, my what I call my little book, um, the, this is kind of an on-ramp to the discipleship process. It's a lot thinner than Discipleship Essentials. Uh, it's only eight lessons. It's actually simplified and answers the question, uh, if I want to be a disciple, what's expected of me? Uh, so it's kind of leading to that commitment uh, to a discipleship process in, in people's lives. So we, I call this an on-ramp. Uh, so if you're trying to, in a sense, entice people into the process, it's not quite as daunting a commitment as initially as discipleship essentials. But part of the covenant is that you will ramp yourself into discipleship essentials or the essential commandments. So essential guide to, to becoming a disciple is, is my most recent publication there. Uh, who, Ralph has already explained this, uh, the men with men, women with women uh, in these groups, uh, general rule of thumb is that I, I think a variety of ages, you know, who's in these groups. I think a variety of some somebody who's just come to Christ or maybe he's not even sure if they're a, a believer with those who are more seasoned. Uh, I, I like to tell the story of one of my favorite groups um, where we had a, a guy in his 30s, a guy in his 40s, a guy in his 50s, and me. Um, so four decades of, of people in, their, in that experience. And the guy in his 30s, we met one month before his marriage. Uh, and, uh, and then within nine months, he had a baby. Um, so they had a good honeymoon. Um, so Billy would say to us, uh, after he got to know us a little bit, um, you know, when I got in this group, I thought, what am I doing with a group of bunch of, and this was his language, old farts. And, uh, and then he got married, <laughs> and then he had a child, and then he realized why he was in a group of people that were, because you know, he was one of these very emotional guys, and he would come in at 6.30 on a Thursday morning, I think we met, and uh, something always happened the night before when relationship with his wife, and so we spent the first 30 minutes listening to him, just emote, you know, over what was happening in his marriage relationship. Um, and then we had a guy in his 40s. Uh, Ron was the uh, eldest of six children whose father was a flaming alcoholic who was, who was a very abusive husband and father. And his discipleship issue was, can I trust God as my father? Uh, and that just came up over and over again because of his, his background. The man in his 50 was Dave. Dave was a seasoned believer who people had great respect for. He had been in the insurance business for 32 years. And during the time he was uh, in our quad, he sensed a call of God to leave that business to go to a profit, a profit ministry uh, leading CEOs, Christian CEOs in this, this profit ministry called C12. He had to jettison his, his, his insurance business, take that leap into this new world in his 50s to start this ministry. And we had a chance to listen to him, you know, during that time. Uh, then, then there was me. Um, so it, it's just made the, the age differences and seasonedness in life just made for a very rich experience to have that kind of variety. So I highly recommend that. We have people come to faith in Christ during these groups. Um, some think they're believers uh, when they start and then find out that they're not in terms of what the, what the true gospel is. So that happens. We had uh, an FBI agent in our church in Chicago. And uh, he thought he was a Christian when he got in the group and realized he wasn't and had a conversion experience during the group. And he said in one of our video testimonies that, uh, you know, I realized I was just a leaf in the stream just kind of going with the flow all the time until I met Christ and had, you know, his life transformed. And they started to do discipleship groups in the FBI, which was kind of fun. So that was, that was good. Um, when do they meet? I think we've already talked about that some. Um, yeah, all kinds of times, but for 90 minutes, um, you know, meet it. You know, a lot of groups meet early morning. You know, depending upon what you know, what works out. Uh, and then where do you meet? Basically, the rule of thumb here is a place that's 
private enough uh, so you can be open with each other. So even if, uh, like, I had a group that met at Starbucks on Tuesday, but we met outside around a table that we had a separate space uh, rather than sitting in amongst a, a lot of other people. So it could be, I, I've said, you know, business boardrooms, um, coffee houses, church, private homes, uh, those, those kind of those kind of places. So hopefully that's uh, just a helpful summary of what what this is this all about. Any questions about what I just walked through? Walked you through? Yeah. Yeah. So you said um, that you use curriculum such as Disabled Essentials. I wondered. Well, two things. That, that just gives you permission to go do something else. This, okay. is, this is what we use for our, our mismatch. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. Well, and I also wondered, have you ever uh, tried just going through scripture alone as a, a discipleship group like that, or have you found that? I have not, um, in terms of taking books of the Bible or, you know, yes. thing, thing, uh, I've, I've not done it just in that fashion. Um, so this is this is topical, you know, in terms of the discipleship essentials approach. Maybe others have had. This is one of the things, reasons why we have these sessions. What others have have you done that would enrich our experience in terms of either curriculum uh, that you used or other ways that you've gone about the discipleship process? I wasn't criticizing, by the way. No, I know. Uh, I, no, I, I, but I would uh, I would suggest a, 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 maybe a, a challenge with that, and that is duplication, replication. You know, you may be able to take, uh, you know, passage out of the Bible and help them go through it, but will everybody in your group be able to turn around and do that? When you have, have this book and they're putting answers in it and everybody's seen it done, they feel confident they've already got a, an answer book, you know, when they start doing their book, when they start doing their group. So uh, this, this really satisfies the challenge of the replication a lot just because of the curriculum that we use. How many of you, have any of you used the Discovery Bible Study method? Okay, so that would be an approach that you could do that because it's a, it's a replicatable pattern that you use for any passage of scripture. Right. Yeah. So, so key, I think, I think there's eight or ten key questions that you work, walk through with the Discovery Bible Study method. So you could use that method and reproduce the it method really on the scripture. Yeah, so. My son didn't want to be in my group. But he was in one of my guys' groups. One of the guys that was in my group went and got my son in his group. So, you know, uh, the, an adult son. Yeah. yeah. But, so, yeah, there's, there's some challenges, I think, to, and you have to think those things through. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's right. certainly not the typical pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think I figured this out in time to at least catch my own daughter at the right, at the right moment. Though I, I mean, what I did with her was just sit down and read scripture together and, and interact over it. But that way I didn't take her through this, this kind of material. Yeah. So you suggest starting at 18 up? Is that what? We've done yeah. it with, we've, we're doing it with high school kids uh, in, in our church. And it's, not, it's high school kids that are pretty committed that will be willing to do something like this. And you, you abbreviate it somewhat. You take smaller portions you know, each week. Um, uh, it's a it's a long study, so that's a challenge. The the smaller book is is usually a better one to yeah. do with the younger they are. So, do some of your churches have a a confirmation process? Uh, do we have any of those kind of churches here that do that? So something like this would work well, I think, in a, a confirmation process to have this kind of study. I, I know of churches that have that have a uh, adult mentor approach to working with with youth or uh, to, to have groups of three or four, instead of uh, the uh, high school youth discipling each other, there will be an adult leading a group of three or four um, through, through uh, uh, I, I say use discipleship essentials as a menu from which to select, you don't have to go through everything. You know, so. Okay, let's uh, move on into uh, our next section of the outline here. So, as you say, we are looking at the whole issue of the relational environment now in terms of let's going into that a little bit more, more detail. And so we're at the top of page four uh, in, in terms of your outline. And let me introduce this kind of biblical model uh, material just from my, some of my own story. Uh, I guess for most of us, um, the deepest convictions of our life come out of our own life experiences. And uh, part of the reason why intentional disciple making is so important to me is what I didn't get at a very crucial time in, in my life. So um, I grew up in a 
quasi-Christian home, I guess we call that a nominal Christian home. Uh, I was, I'm a baby boomer by age, uh, following World War II, I think the um, general tone in this country was, uh, you know, most families go to church. It's kind of the, we had a religious boom in the 50s, uh, all these babies being born. And uh, parents, like my, my parents, kind of outsourced to the church the raising of their kids by, and spiritually. So they didn't feel competent to do that themselves, nor even had a desire, I don't think, to do it. My father was the son of Disciples of Christ missionaries to Tibet, uh, and he grew up in this faraway land. He might have lived on another planet um, in terms of where my father probably grew up. It was not a positive experience for him, and so we always kept faith at an arm's length in terms of my, certainly my growing up years, and I don't think ever really resolved uh, that issue, at least to my conscious understanding of it. But as I was going into seventh grade, I was kind of this troubled seventh grade kid, had a lot of fears in my life, and uh, you know, fear of how I was doing in school, and athletics, and friendships, and you know, they were kind of crashing in on me. But I was invited to go off to a church camp weekend, uh, and I wasn't, we weren't all that involved in the church, but for some reason, another friend of mine and I kind of made a bond, and let's go off and do this together. And it was that weekend that I heard the good news of the gospel, you know, the, the love of Christ for me. And boy, did I ever need that at this, that time in my life. And so whoever was speaking on that Saturday morning concluded his message with Matthew um, chapter 11, verse uh, 28. Come to me, all you who are overburdened, heavy laden, uh, and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you then. And I remember that word rest just kind of like, I need rest, you know, from these burdens. And the invitation came to get up out of your seat, go meet with a, a counselor that will lead you to Christ. And... I, it was like one of those times when you just like were yanked out of your chair by the Holy Spirit and sent across the street. And in the midst of that whole thing, I, I had this overwhelming experience of the love of God. And it was just, it was like oceans of love flowing over me. I can get right back to that moment as I remember it. Uh, I remember sitting out on a rock after having this experience and, and just the sun was beating down on me and I felt like that was the love of God flowing into me. That night, um, the camp counselor asked us, anything happened to any of you today? And I, you know, sort of timidly raised my hand and said I made a commitment to Christ. He handed me a decision card. I filled out the decision card, handed it back to him. All I, re all I recalled from that, that particular weekend, where's my Bible? I lost it sorry, somewhere, um, was that, it's buried, here we go, um, was that we were supposed to read our Bible. If you become a Christian, read your Bible. I, I didn't even know where the Bibles were in our house, you know, much less read them. So uh, where do you start? Well, I opened up to the Psalms and, <laughs> and read a few Psalms, and uh, that's what it looked like to me, um, and couldn't make much head out, out of it at that point. Um, the problem was I heard from nobody from the church afterwards. Uh, I don't know what that, where that distinction card went to, but it was, you know, got filed away. And uh, so for the next number of years, I just drifted. Um, did my sporadic church involvement. I wasn't going to go to an adult and say, okay, what's next? And what do I do with this? I knew something wonderful had happened to me, uh, but what to do with it, I had no, no idea. Fortunately, between my junior and senior years of high school, I was going on a trip in the United States with about 70 other high school kids. It was called the Glendale Educational Tour. And two of our high school teachers uh, were leading this tour as a part of their summer job. This was not a Christian thing. And, uh, but we had a core of Christian kids that were meeting uh, almost daily as a part of this. And I recognized them from the church that I was sort of tangentially connected to, but didn't know them well because I wasn't involved in the church. And uh, they invited me to join them as a part of that, that experience. They called it getting together for devotions. And I thought that's kind of quaint, listening back on it. But um, So um, they folded me back into the high school group. When I got back that summer, uh, there, was, there was a community of committed believers that loved each other. Uh, they took their faith seriously. And it was the most welcoming community I, I could have been a part of. And it was like, the message to me was, Greg, we are so glad to have you here as a part of our group. And boy, did I ever need that in my, in my life. As I was going into my sophomore year of college, now getting kicked into my, my faith at that point, I got a phone call from a seminary student who was leading our junior high ministry. And uh, he called up and he said he was looking for people to 
help him you know, with the junior high ministry. He had started a thing called Campus Club, had about 130 junior high students bouncing off the walls every Wednesday night in our gymnasium. And I think he just needed some reinforcements and I happened to be on the list. And Greg, how would you like to be a part of a team working with our junior high ministry? And uh, sure, great, you know, and I like to say it was one of those times when you didn't know enough to say no, you know, it was, uh, so um, I showed up on Wednesday nights, uh, we'd had a recreation, skits, dinner together, a little message, and then we'd break up into groups, and lo and behold, what did I get? Seventh grade boys. Um, so that was my, that was my group, and so the Lord was kind of completing the loop in there at that point in time. Uh, Don was in his last year of seminary. He would call up periodically and ask to get together. Uh, we would play tennis together, and I was playing some competitive tennis in those days, and was a lot better than he was. But so I enjoyed beating him in a tennis match. But the what happened was the transaction between Don and myself. I remember vividly sitting on this bench next to the tennis court after we played, and Don would pull out his New Testament, and he would open it up and begin to share with me some things that were speaking to his life. And he took me into his life. It wasn't just you know, explaining what the text was, it was how this text was touching his life, how it was getting into him. And as I like to say, there was a transaction that took place. You know, if Don wants to follow Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. I like what I see in this man's life. And I think that was kind of my first almost subliminal understanding of what discipling was all about. If you're going to have impact upon people, you have to get near them. You have to get close to them. You have to invest in their life like Don was investing in, in me. And that became, for me, kind of a mere reflection of uh, the way Jesus went about doing ministry. So why don't we actually look at Scripture here for a moment. It might be a novel thing. And uh, take a look at uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, as the relational context in which Jesus made, made disciples. The setting here is that uh, we don't know the exact length of time, but Jesus was probably involved in his public ministry maybe six to nine months at this point. He had gathered up, obviously, a larger entourage of disciples that were itinerating with him, and he came to a point where he wanted to decide from that larger group who would be his core apostles, who would be the ones that, uh, that he would be investing uh, his life in. As Ralph said, he spent a good portion of his, his ministry with them. So at verse 12, it says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles. So we've got this picture of a larger group. We've got Jesus praying all night. Uh, what was Jesus praying about, do you think? What was going on? You think he was still trying to decide who the 12 should be? I think he had 15 on the list. <laughs> Which three do I get rid of? No. You think he was doing that? I doubt that. Um, this is probably what he was actually doing. Peter? Three years with Peter? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> um, and what do you think? He, what do you think he was praying for? Wouldn't it have been nice to eavesdrop on that prayer to, to know what was going on? Was he already praying for what they could become? What they would be under his his tutelage? Um, what they would be shaped into? I think a lot of that was was what was happening there. Um, and then he's from this larger group, and apparently publicly, from what it sounds like here, the, the, the public designation of the of the twelve, he selects these twelve to be a part of his his inner core. So why was this such an important element uh, in Jesus' ministry? What was he trying to accomplish uh, with that? Well, how, what's, what was the strategic nature of of his having this inner core that he would he would be investing in? Okay, you've got a limited amount of time. Which ones can I should be pouring amount of time? Because so even Jesus had limitations as a human being, as a number of people that he could invest himself in, yeah, give himself to. Okay, what else was he trying to accomplish by investing in this twelve? Beginning of his church, what he would leave behind as he fulfilled the prophecies, you say? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
So this is the foundation. We talk about the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Paul does. Uh, certainly this is the, a key element uh, here in that ministry. Yeah. So yeah, the, these stories of the mysteries of the kingdom and uh, how it starts small and, and, and blossoms into something. Right. Leadership development. You know, foundations. Uh, you go to John chapter 17 and Jesus' final prayer for his, the 12 that he's building his ministry on. Jesus seemed to look ahead. Uh, you know, where, where am I going to be three years from now? I don't know if he knew exactly what his timetable was uh, as the incarnate uh, son of God but uh, certainly was planning for the time when he was turning this ministry over uh, to others. Uh, we have a challenge here that comes up. If, if you knew that you only had three years left in your ministry and no one to replace you, um, how would that affect your agenda uh, in terms of your ministry to live off of that, that time frame? Well, Jesus was going to go to the Father. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, of course. Uh, but he was laying the foundations uh, for them in terms of their, their development. So... Uh, two things to focus in on here in terms of uh, why Jesus focused in on, on a few. One is what I call internalization. Uh, the only way to internalize into a key group of people, uh, his manner, mission, uh, methodology, was to focus in on a few. Um, that he did not in, entrust himself to the crowds. Um, as it says in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, if you look that up, that says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all people. Mm -hmm. uh, and the prior, prior verse is that they were coming for his healings, for his miracles, mm -hmm. for all his demonstrations of power. And, uh, and yet he did not build his ministry on the crowds because they could be with you one moment and what? Gone the next. What does it require of you to be a part of a crowd? What does it require of you to be in this room right now? Besides show not showing up, you know, uh, uh, or people to be in a congregation on a Sunday morning, um, there's no level of commitment necessary to stay in the crowd. Uh, it's only when you step out of the crowd and get on the journey of discipleship that, and starting to identify yourself with Jesus as these twelve had to do, that the transformation started to take place uh, in their lives. So, um, you know, the, the fickleness uh, of the crowd. One of my favorite books on discipling is a classic by A.B. Bruce called The Training of the Twelve. And uh, his statement, uh, when I read this many years ago, just jumped off the page to me. He says, this careful, painstaking education of the disciples secured the teacher's influence on this world should be permanent, that his kingdom should be founded on the rock of deep and indestructible convictions in the minds of a few, not on the shifting sands of superficial impressions in the minds of the many. And I thought, wow, does that ever describe uh, the vast majority of our, of our churches, the superficial impressions in the minds of the many. So he was going for that, that deeper focus uh, on the few. I don't know if uh, Robert Coleman quotes this in the Master Plan of Evangelism or not, or where I came across this besides reading um, the book Training of the Twelve. But that word superficial jumped out to me because I think that describes the state of discipleship. In, in most of our churches. And the, the primary, I think, reason uh, for that superficiality is that we've diverted leaders from equipping. Uh, that our pastoral leaders, and uh, I'll show this chart, um, there's not too many places in scripture where you get a pastoral job description, right, that's st stated as to what a pastor or pastor teacher is to do. But Paul in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 does a pretty good job of describing that. Uh, he talks about the four uh, gifted groups of people. Sometimes we would say five apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors. I put pastors hyphen teachers. Um, some people would say pastors and teachers. So these kind of foundational uh, uh, group of people uh, are to do one thing. What are they supposed to do? They equip the saints. And if the saints are equipped, what will happen? The work of ministry will be done. If the work of ministry is done, then what will happen? Okay. So what are some other words for equip? Um, prepare. Prepare. Train. Train. How about disciple? Okay. Um, so who's to, who's to do the ministry? The saints. Yeah. Um, but what has generally happened, I think, in our, in our churches is that we have bypassed this and said, 
these people are to do the work of ministry. Let's not, let's X this out. Because yeah. that's what we pay them for, right? right. Yeah. You went to seminary? What did you go to seminary for? Um, you have a seminary to take care of us uh, in our, our ministry. I, I wrote a book called The New Reformation, Returning the Ministry of the People of God, that's now called The Unfinished Business, Returning the Ministry of the People of God. And in that book, I, I critique what I call the dependency model ministry that has grown up in most of our churches versus the equipping model right. ministry. And the dependency model is we hire pastors to come and speak to us, to take care of us, to be there in times of crisis in our life, to show up at the hospital, and like Ralph was trying to do with his board, board chair, and uh, we expect that that to take place. And in fact, we even set up our Sunday mornings so that everything's focused on the pastor delivering the message. Uh, oftentimes fell at the end of my preaching on Sunday morning, I should look over at the choir. They had cards on their laps. They have, you know, numbers on those cards. They would raise those numbers and immediately critique them, the, the, how well I did that morning, you know. Or we, we set this up by we, we shake hands with people as they walk out the door. And so we create the environment where they have to give us a, an instant feedback on how the service went that morning. You know, good sermon pastor, you know, or great music today, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we set up the spectator performer relationship and uh, we're there to critique what's gone on and, uh, and give the feedback. My favorite line though was this. Woman came by, you know, and I call this a drive-by shooting. <laughs> and uh, she shook my hand. She said, you know, you're getting better. <laughs> and where does, me, where does my mind immediately go with that? Well, better than what, you know? Better than what I used to be. So um, so I, I think what we've, we've done is, is, you know, set this thing up so that we're uh, kind of failing to have the pastors be the equippers. And a lot of it is, you know, when we teach these seminars, uh, pastors will say to us, you want me to add one more thing to all the things I'm already doing? And I'm thinking, yeah, discipling is one more thing. Maybe there's a need to be a rearrangement of priorities along the line here for all the things that you're doing. Randy Pope uh, is uh, pastor of Perimeter Church. So many of you probably are aware of, of some of their disciple-making efforts. It's really a fine church. Monty Starks is a good friend of mine who's very involved in that ministry there. And Randy has been doing intentional discipling, I think he said, for 48 consecutive years when I heard him uh, talk. He's always had a discipleship group in his life, and they, they live that out at Perimeter Church. A little different model than what we're proposing here, but uh, an excellent approach to things. He said he went to a, a, you know, a pastor's conference that were all invited pastors uh, to uh, these gatherings of megachurch pastors. And so they gather together and the, the convener of the group says, okay, let's construct the agenda together. Let's, you each bring an issue that you want to talk about and we'll make a list of these issues and then we'll prioritize them and talk about them in order priority of what you're interested in. And Randy says that he wanted to talk about uh, how do we do spiritual formation in our congregations? Another word for discipleship. And he said that that topic ended up dead last on the list of the megachurch pastors. And they finally got to it about 30 minutes left in their time together when everybody was already checking out, heading to the airport, you know, that kind of thing. And so the leader of, of the group says, well, as you can see, I left this topic for last. In this day and age, how does the church specifically help people in spiritual formation? Eh, if you can get your people to go to worship, do outreach, volunteer weekly, that's about the best you can do. Wow. Goodbye. Head to the airport. And, uh, and that kind of mentality, I think, is, is there. Uh, most church pastors would say, well, I'm preaching regularly. I got baptisms. I got committee meetings to run. Uh, you know, where does this fit in? to the list of priorities. Well, unless it becomes so important that you are able to rearrange your priorities, uh, then you're not actually spending your time on fo focused on what we're, what we're called uh, to be about. So, um, sort of refocusing around, around this. So, one of a, the good discipleship books of a generation ago by Leroy Imes, he says, disciples cannot be mass produced. 
We cannot drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of a production line. It takes time to make disciples. It takes an in, in individual personal attention. So yeah, what we're proposing here uh, is no instant quick fix. You can't microwave disciples. I wish you could um, in terms of getting that done quickly. It takes a longer term vision of three to five to seven years to see this organic growth take place in your church, life of the church. So you have to take that, that longer term uh, perspective. Okay, one final uh, thing here as we're wrapping up our time. So if internalization is the, the first reason for Jesus' strategic investment, then multiplication was perhaps the second, second reason. And uh, I, I love this phrase, you, we have, enough, have to have enough vision to think small. Think small in terms of that personal investment in people who then multiply uh, their effectiveness over time. Jesus, yes, had a heart for the multitudes, but the way he was going to reach the multitudes was through people, uh, the transformed people. Uh, Eugene Peterson has one of my favorite quotes. I think it's in his book, Traveling Light. He said, Jesus, it must be remembered, restricted nine-tenths of his ministry to 12 Jews because that was the only way to reach all Americans. Uh, or fill in whatever ethnic group you want. Fill in there, all Koreans, Chinese, etc. Um, so here's the, here's the challenge, uh, and maybe we'll close on this. Uh, perhaps today's pastor should imagine, oops, let me get to the next thing. Perhaps today's pastor should imagine they're going to have three more years in their parish. I think you have this quote in your material. Uh, and there will be no replacement for them when they leave. If they acted as this was going to happen, they would then put the highest priority on selecting, motivating, and training lay leaders that could carry on the mission. The results of three sustained years of such an approach would be quite significant, even revolutionary. Yes. So let's, let's just reflect on this. I'm going to ask you to just kind of turn to somebody next to you here at this point. Um, past, how many pastors do we have in the room here? Okay, so you guys are all paid to be Christians, right? Okay. Uh, so how many, how, many real, how many real people do we have in the room? Right? Yeah, okay, <laughs> good for nothing, yeah. Okay, so I've just divided it into pastors and lay leaders. Um, so uh, pastors, how would you change your priorities if you knew you were gonna be gone in three years and no one to replace you? It's really a good exercise. It's a good exercise you do with your church board um, to s help them see um, how this might refocus. Lay leaders, how might you advise your pastors to change their priorities? Mm -hmm. I always say, this is, this is your chance to tell your pastors what you want them to do. Um, and then lay leaders, what responsibilities might fall to you? So let's just uh, do a quick little brainstorming here at the end. Um, talk to the person next to you and uh, maybe answer the first couple of questions there. Uh, what priorities might change? What advice would you give a pastor for changing priorities if you only had three years and nobody to replace you? I remember reading a, a, another article in, in Leadership Journal and it was a, by a pastor that said, uh, Jesus never delegated discipleship. Mm -hmm. And my staff, when we were on our annual retreat and we were talking about what our objectives would be for the next year and discipleship had become a major objective for us as a church, somebody asked, who's point person on this anyway? And then all of a sudden they looked at me <laughs> and I realized I had to be the point person. I have a, I had a, a small groups pastor who took a lot of the workload, but I was the, I took the responsibility of being the point person for discipleship in the church. I led discipleship groups. I think I led ten groups there before I left, and um, I led groups. I, I talked about it from the pulpit. I encouraged it. I was I was the point person because that's what the church is about. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from the Global Discipleship Initiative track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download their free PDF that summarizes how they teach people to do micro-discipleship groups, which are made of three or four people. Download it at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.